Hi, a quick note before we start. If you have young listeners with you, please be advised that this podcast contains strong language. Also, it's serialized, so if you're just joining in here, you should go back and start at episode one of season three. Okay, let's start the show. I'm sitting in a bed, and the doctors come in to do their morning rounds, and like the head guy is like, how you feeling? He comes in, like, you know, stands at the foot of my bed and grabs my foot. How you doing, champ? And I'm nodding my head. He's like, you feel okay? And I nod my head. And then he says, yeah, you really scared us last night. We lost you for five minutes. Jason Weems was recovering in a hospital in Philadelphia after collapsing at a comedy show. He had an asthma attack that was so severe that his heart stopped for five whole minutes. What are you talking about? Who, who says five minutes? Everybody that I know have died, they've died for six minutes. This can't be true. <laughs> I'm Talia Bacassis, and this is First Day Back, a documentary podcast about trying to get your life back after an event that changes you. Jason Weems is a comedian. But he's also a family man with three young kids. He's not a big guy, but he carries himself like one. He's black, but is so fair-skinned he likes to call himself beige. The night he died, he was brought to the hospital alone. At intake, Jason was given an ID bracelet for his wrist with the name Unknown. When he woke up and saw that, it felt like a slap in the face. How could he be unknown when he was just headlining a comedy show? Was this where he was in his life? Jason's wife, Dion, eventually arrived. She's striking, with cherry red braids woven into her hair and nervous energy in the best of times. She kept a vigil by Jason's bedside while he was unconscious. At some point in the night, Jason opened his eyes and saw his wife sitting there. He mimed to her that he wanted to write something down, so she gave him a pen and paper. So I was able to start scribbling down questions to her, and I was saying, like, you know, like, where are we? And she would say, like, we're in a hospital in Philadelphia. And I kind of remember the asthma attack. And I had a huge knot on my head, so I'm like, okay, I had an asthma attack. I fell, hit myself. I'm in the hospital. Okay, makes sense. All right, thanks for your help, everybody. It made sense, but it also made no sense. I have no recollection of, like, there was no horns or trumpets or things that played. I didn't see a light. Jason felt like if he died... Wouldn't he remember it? He wasn't quite himself yet, but he was starting to see the funny in things. Like, if he had an asthma attack, why were his legs sore? He thought, maybe there's a joke in there somewhere. He jotted down a couple of other ideas, and then he turned to the most pressing thing on his mind. I've been in the hospital before, and I've had times where I've been there for a couple of hours, and you get a crazy bill for something. So logistically, I'm thinking like, okay, let's get the hell out of here. (laughs) before they kill us financially. <laughs> so, uh, like I'd rather live financially and die physically. <laughs> you hear that wheezing in Jason's laugh? <laughs> That's the asthma. Jason has had asthma his whole life, so his lungs work harder than yours or mine for every breath and every laugh. At the hospital, the doctors told Jason they thought the attack might have been brought on by sulfites in the red wine he drank just before getting on stage. They wanted to hold on to him for more observation, but he refused. He wanted to get home to his kids. 
he signed documents stating that he was being released against doctor's orders. Then they waited for his stuff. One person brought back his pants, then another guy came with his shoes, each item one by one, until the last thing, his favorite Harry Potter t-shirt. It was sliced in half when they were trying to save his life. It all felt weird, so he made a mental note to make a joke about that, too. He didn't have a shirt, so Dion gave him her hoodie. They left the hospital in a daze and got in the car. Jason felt like this thing that he just lived through, dying and coming back to life, it was all starting to sink in hard. We were sitting at like a red light. There was a guy walking across the crosswalk. And I was saying, like, if I didn't come back, that guy would probably still be walking across this crosswalk. Like, the world keeps happening. I'm just not in it. If I didn't wake back up, I wouldn't know that I didn't wake back up. Like, it would just been, you know... Kids don't have a daddy now. And my wife said something to me. She said that she was a widow for five minutes and didn't know it. I think that hit me harder than even when the doctor told me that I was dead. Severe asthma attacks were not new for Jason. When he was a kid growing up in Northeast Baltimore, his asthma kept his parents on tenterhooks. They were constantly worried about him. Weeks after his attack, Jason and I got in the car and drove to his old neighborhood. He showed me the apartment complex where he grew up. It looked like a couple of oversized yellow Lego bricks spread across a carpet of grass. I remember so many times just memories of my father carrying me up the sidewalk. Like I'm wheezing and he's got me on his shoulder carrying me up and he would lay me in the back seat. Jason's father driving him to the hospital became a routine of his childhood. There's a hospital not far from here called Franklin Square, and that's where I always went. Like, they knew me. As soon as I walked in, like, the nurse, we were, like, on a first-name basis. They were like, hey, Jason. I'm like, hey, Beth. How are the kids? All right. His asthma was so bad, it meant he couldn't play like his friends. But, yeah, I remember being out here running around, or my parents telling me, like, when you go outside, sit on the step. So, like, I would be sitting on the step watching all the other kids run around and play. I think maybe some of my comedy came in those moments. Like, I mean, because you're left to yourself. So your imagination starts running wild. You start kind of getting more in touch with your thoughts. And I was literally forced to sit down. So in that, I started observing so much more. Even just 10 years old, Jason started thinking of himself like a comedy recorder holding on to images and moments all around him that he could turn into jokes later. As he got older, his asthma improved. He's not exactly sure why. He enrolled in Morgan State University, a historically black college in Baltimore. That's where he met Dion. She remembers the exact moment. You gotta picture it, right? Morgan State University, in the front of Holmes Hall, which is this beautiful, everything that you picture a, a university campus to look like. It was early in their freshman year. She was with a friend when they ran into Jason. So Jason is walking towards Holmes Hall steps, and I just remember looking and seeing this smile. And you got to understand that there's a certain weight that comes with being a Black man 
in the United States. If a black man smiles, depending on the code of where they're from, that could be viewed as weakness. And you can't afford to be a black man in the United States and be perceived as weak. So to meet Jason and the first thing was like this warmth of a genuine smile. And I'm like, who does that? Like this, is that real? In college, Jason's smile and charisma were legend. Oh, Jason ruled Morgan State. From administration down to trash collection. He... He ran Morgan, he did. Jason was Mr. Freshman, Mr. Sophomore, Mr. Junior, and then Mr. Morgan. When he graduated, Jason still had to figure out a career. His mom was an elementary school teacher, so that looked pretty safe. He took a job as a kindergarten teacher and found himself in front of a classroom of expectant five-year-olds. It was a tough room. Really good teachers are performers. I mean, you know... You got to capture an audience. You got to hold their attention. You got to learn how to move on your feet and think quickly and improvise and all those types of things. That's exactly what I would do with the kids. He was in his element, and little things the kids would do cracked him up. So he would scribble down ideas on post it notes all day long. They weren't fully formed jokes, just kernels that he thought, this is too good. I have to remember it. He kept all these tiny scraps of paper in Ziploc bags. My first time doing stand-up, I took a bag like this on stage. And I stood there and I was like, how's everybody doing today? All right, let's begin. Jason is miming, dipping his hand in a bag without even looking at it. Like the way you would when picking a winner for a raffle. <laughs> and I just read the notes. And I, I, didn't, I didn't look up. I was just like this. And then either they laughed or they didn't laugh. Then I would put it back in. Then I'll go to the next one. All right. I think you guys will enjoy this one. <laughs> Yes, way. Jason decided to go all in with comedy. Even as he taught kindergarten all day long, he hustled. I was literally on stage seven nights a week. I would leave school, drive to a show, do two shows, come back, sleep for a few hours, do the whole thing over again. My first four years of doing stand-up, I didn't miss one night. When we come back, Jason catches a big break. There are so many podcasts out there, it can be hard to sort through the noise and find one you love. I want to recommend one of my favorites, Reveal, from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I listen to the show for its in-depth reporting of important stories where often I've heard a bit about it, but I want to know what's really going on. For example, in their episode Silencing Science, Reveal exposed how officials at the National Park Service tried to censor a climate scientist one who'd been hired to research 100 national parks and how climate change could cause future flooding. But after the Trump administration took over, the researcher was pressured to delete references to humans causing climate change. Facts matter, today more than ever. Every week, Reveal digs super deep to uncover corruption, deception, malfeasance, inequality. And year after year, Reveal wins many of the biggest awards in journalism. And the sound is transportive. For some of the best reporting out there, check out Reveal on iTunes, Radio Public, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Learn more at revealnews.org. Last comic standing. Think about. I think you're very, very funny, so I'm going to say yes. I would think. In 2010, Jason caught the eye of producers for Last Comic Standing. I still work a day job. I teach kindergarten. I'm trying to transition into stand up full time. Tonight can be the defining moment that gets me from that point from performing for 18 people to hopefully 18,000. Get ready to laugh with Jason Wee! Last Comic was a reality TV show where comedians competed for a cash prize and a television special on NBC. And I made it to the semis, so I was like the final 30-something people out of a couple of thousand. So that was big. And then it got even bigger. He was chosen for the best venue for a rising comedian. Montreal, New Faces, that's like the first real peg in, like, building your career. New Faces is an annual showcase of up-and-coming new talent. Jeff Singer is its mastermind. Montreal Just for Laughs is still regarded as the holy grail in the world of comedy. It's become the predominant, you know, avenue for young comedians to really launch their careers and take the next big step. People like Colin Jost from SNL, Fortune Famester from The Mindy Project, and Joe Mandy from Parks and Recreation— They were all on the bill with Jason. In fact, almost all of the performers from Jason's year have gone on to big success in the industry. It really is a launching pad. I was in the mindset of, I'm going to go up here, tell these jokes. It's going to be a TV executive waiting as soon as I get off stage. We're going to make this TV show, make all this money. And I went up. I did amazing. Eight muskets. (laughs) I'm going to say that again. Muskets. Not a whole lot of unsolved musket murders these days, are they? Like, if you kill somebody for musket, that's truly premeditated murder. <laughs> Think about it. You gotta locate a musket. You gotta acquire the musket. You gotta restore the musket to working conditions. I think he just had a really unique point of view. Uh, I remember liking a stage presence that kind of reminded me a little bit of an early Dave Chappelle, although I don't like obviously making that comparison. It's a bit grandiose, but there was just something about his vibe and his demeanor uh, that was just very likable. And his writing was strong and he had a very unique point of view. He stood out. He was really funny. Being funny is obviously the most important thing about opportunities like this, but comedy is also a big business. There were a lot of things about being at a major festival with TV execs that Jason didn't know. Schmoozing, the meetings, just playing the game. You know, I got a lot of cards. Oh my God, you're so funny. What the fuck am I doing with this card? (laughs) I came home with a pocket full of cards and I talked to some people while I was there, but I wasn't in a place, I wasn't comfortable just like shoehorning my way into conversations. Like, hey guys, like what are you drinking? (laughs) So it didn't go the way he hoped. You haven't seen Jason Weems on Saturday Night Live or any other late night show. I've seen some guys who look at you like, why aren't you famous? There's a lot of those guys, the why aren't you famous guys. Wait, do you feel like you're one of those guys, like, why aren't you famous? I do. Because I've had a lot of opportunities in my 12 years, whether it was Last Comic and then it falls out, or Montreal and it falls out. And this is very deflating Because everyone you feel like is going to be that one. But I think it's coming. Jason isn't alone in thinking that. 
Sean Joyce is a comedian and major booker in D.C. There's definitely a hierarchy, and he's at the top of it for sure. He's, without question, one of the funniest comics in the area, if not the funniest comic. I have him headline any chance I get. He's one of my first choices of comedians to book on any show. Other comedians in the D.C. area all rave about Jason. They all think he's a why-aren't-you-famous guy who probably should have moved to New York. If he was single and didn't care about money and could go up there and, and have a whatever, a day job he didn't care about and live in a, a bad apartment in New York, he'd be in a completely different place. After Jason had the terrifying death incident in Philadelphia, all the comedians who love and admire him came out to show their support. Jason got a standing ovation when he came on stage. Oh, I'm so happy I'm alive. Sean Joyce didn't even realize how relieved he was until he started talking about it. And I think Jason's really important to a lot of people in D.C. So let me try to say that again. You know, you, you, you see somebody work so hard on what they're trying to do. And then, you know, to have a health issue like that come up, it's nothing to, you know, it's totally out of his control. It was scary to think that maybe he wouldn't be able to perform anymore. For weeks after Jason's death, he drew the curtains in his house and just lay on the couch and thought about dying on stage. He was freaked out that the intense asthma attacks of his childhood were coming back. He was suddenly that kid again, forced to sit on the steps outside his apartment didn't want to face the world. I didn't want to... Everything felt a little bit scarier. It makes you feel like you're not in as much control as you think you may be. Like, there's some circumstances that are beyond us. I feel more comfortable on stage a lot of times than I do just in everyday life. So for this to happen while I'm in my comfort space, it's like that feeling of, like, you know, somebody breaking into your house. It's that feeling of when something happens in a space that it shouldn't. But Jason couldn't help thinking that parts of what happened were absurd and funny. When he thought back to the crowd laughing when he took out his inhaler on stage, or how weird it was to wake up in hand restraints, he thought, this could actually be material. A lot of other comedians have turned their own tragedy into comedy. Maybe he could do that. By all accounts, my tombstone should have read December 21st, 1980 to May 3rd, 2017. May 4th on, like, this is all borrowed time. This is all, like, like a bonus level that I've been given. Like, in game shows, when you get to the bonus round, like, that's where you get the big prizes and everything else. So I feel like bonus level is where all the great things happen. What if dying is the thing that will take Jason Weems from a why-aren't-you-famous guy to something bigger? Next time on First Day Back. 
This is uh, cathartic for me. I haven't really talked about this too much on stage yet. But I gotta get it right though, because there's no other comic that fucking died from an asthma attack in Philly and turned blue. <laughs> this shit gonna make me famous. <laughs> you guys are on the ground level. When this shit is on HBO, you can be like, I was at Rag Time the night he told that shit. <laughs> First Day Back is reported and produced by me, Tally Abacassis, and Mark George. The show is edited by Mary Beth Kirshner, and our executive producers are Suzanne Reber and Ellen Weiss. Sound design and score by David Herman, and fact-checking by Aisha Bagshi. First Day Back is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. Our executive producers at Stitcher are Jenny Radelit and Chris Bannon. You can find First Day Back on Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear ad-free episodes of First Day Back only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month trial, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code FIRST. If you like First Day Back, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Talia Bacassis, and you can find me on Twitter at Talia Bacassis or on our website, firstdayback.com. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next week. Thank you.